even these whispers, um, I believe, are like incense to you because you hear the names of people that you love and that you, uh, you're able to draw them to Jesus. And so we've asked you, and uh, I know the people I've mentioned, the two names I think of, I don't even know what kind of spiritual influence is in their lives right now, but I know you can draw them, and if you want me or any one of us to be a part of that drawing in those people's lives, let us know that. Again, we don't want to we don't want to talk to people out of like guilt or shame, but we want to talk to them if you've called us to talk to them and if this conversation leads that way. So, God, we want to see people follow you that don't follow you now. People we love, people we know. And uh, just would you do that because that's what you do. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, topic for today is talking back. Um, when I was a kid... I talked back to my mom one time, and within a few minutes, I had a bar of soap in my mouth, all right? Think of Christmas story, you know? It was the soap poisoning, right? And uh, actually, in that case, I really wasn't talking back to my mom. My, my dad heard the tail end of a conversation, and he thought that's what I was doing, and, but anyway, um, I think it was Dove or Dial Soap or whatever, and you might think, well, you need to go to some counseling about this. And yeah, I probably do because it's one of those things like that. But, but talking back was not, was not allowed in our home, all right? I'm assuming those of you who are parents with younger kids, uh, talking back is not something you allow or uh, you try to figure out how to navigate through that or stop it. Um, to some degree, if you're in a position of authority or a boss or anything like that, you don't want talking back. Um, so it's usually something that's not something we want, right? Today I want to encourage you in the strongest terms I can possibly encourage you to is to talk back. And there's situations where you should talk back. Not to people. We're going to look at a situation where Jesus uh, models this for us. And actually the book I read this week, it's called Talking Back, and it's written by a 4th century monk named Averagus. And the subtitle is A Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. And we're, I know we're not monks, we're not in a monastery, but it's a fascinating book about, okay, how do we respond to the lies of Satan that enter our heads in ways we don't fully understand? How do we talk back? Not shout back, not yell back, like, you know, not, but how do we talk back to Satan? And why should we, or should we? Or is, you know... Is it just kind of psychological self-talk and Satan's not real and what do we do, blah, blah, blah. But we need to learn how to talk back. Because Jesus talked back. So we're looking today at the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I've done a series, started a series, and uh, just calling it Follow Jesus. There's no one like him. Because again, Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was... Uh, tax collector, hated, et cetera, et cetera. But he's still a Jew, and he, he knew about Jesus. And he's writing the Gospel of Matthew probably 20, 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. But he's wanting to convince people there's nobody like this Jesus guy. He fulfills the Old Testament. He's everything we thought of, of Messiah was supposed to be. Now look at all the things he's doing. And the Gospel of Matthew is miracles and tense conversations with the Pharisees and 
all these things, confrontations with demonic spirits, and all of it's Matthew's way of saying, and again, if I had one of those big uh, progressive insurance arrows that you see at the street corner, I, Matthew is taking that arrow and he's pointing it to Jesus. He's the one. He's the one. Everything he writes in the Gospel of Matthew is pointing to, the, the big word is fulfillment. He's fulfilled everything. He's the one. He's the one you should trust. He's the one you should follow. Right? And again, I, I've... I've, I've I've said this before, but I, I keep, I'll keep repeating it. I, I, don't, I, I no longer encourage people or even talk about myself uh, as a Christian. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I am a Christian, but I, want to, I like to encourage people to use the terminology, I'm a follower of Jesus. Because a Christian in our country, who knows what that means anymore? It just means, I guess it means you're not a Muslim and maybe you voted for Trump. I don't know, you know, that kind of a thing. But we're followers of Jesus, first and foremost. Jesus called people to follow him. He didn't ask them to join the church. I think going to church is important, but he didn't ask them that. All right. So today we're doing uh, Matthew chapter 4, and this is where Jesus is temp- tested in the wilderness. Some people will say Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. The word that's used in the Bible can have a little, both of those. But it, the sense of, it's like, it's like Satan really wasn't tempting Jesus. Because Jesus was not going to, but it was a test. Unlike, not unlike a test you and I might go through. You might remember from the Old Testament, Satan was testing. He told God, I'm going to test Job. I don't think Job really loves you. I think Job only loves you because of what you do for him. So one of the things Satan's testing with Job, and even I will see with Jesus, and he does with us, he's always trying to Put under stress your relationship with God. He's testing that relationship to see if it's genuine or if it's simply convenient. But when the stress happens, will you break? All right, so it's under stress that how you relate to Jesus and God is most defined, right? And, and that's what Satan knows, and that's what Satan's really good at. So we're going to look at but it's tested in the desert by Satan, I'll give you the context of that, but it's maybe more of a picture of, okay, if we're going to follow Jesus, and this is how he deals with, with lies that are thrown at him, maybe it's a good model to mimic after. How do, we, how do we do this, and why do we do it, in a way that's not just kind of this rote behaviorism like Pavlov's thought. Well, we do it because Jesus did it. No, we've got to understand why Jesus did it. All right? So here's Matthew chapter 4. So it's important to mention what just happened in Matthew 3. And just so you know, I'm going to do a chapter every week. I don't always cover the entire chapter. I usually find part of the chapter that just sticks out like I think I'm supposed to talk about that week. And so, but last week, uh, the end of the chapter, the end of the chapter 3 was the baptism of Jesus. John baptized him, and Jesus comes out of the water, and they hear this voice, and it's the voice of God saying, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's important to keep that in mind that he was saying that the voice of God says, this is my beloved son. Because during this time in the desert, Satan is challenging that statement. You know, he, always, he keeps saying, if you're the son of God. So what, was just, what Matthew just points out is, no, God said this, Jesus, he is the son of God. And Satan's going to test that because he's really testing Jesus' relationship with the Father, all right? So it starts off this way. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. All right, he wasn't, he wasn't led by Satan. He was led by the Spirit. This is something that God knew was going to be happening. 
spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. And the word devil uh, throughout this particular event and even throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you might, there's words like, the words are used like the tempter, uh, the evil one, um, the devil is a word that's translated that way. So, but he's, it's, he's led into this desert by the Spirit, but he's going to be tested by the devil. So that's right away, it starts thinking, wait a minute. So God might lead me into a situation, or the Holy Spirit might lead you into a situation where you're going to be tested? Yes. Because that's how we grow. It's not because God's trying to be mean, it's how we grow. We grow when we're tested. So he's led into the desert. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second because it's important. Um, let me sure I was turned on there. So you might think, okay, so Jesus went into the desert and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So the testing was Satan being able to get him at his weakest. Because we don't know when in the 40 days Satan come, came. And, um, but I think the testing in the wilderness and fasting 40 days and the fasting and the isolation was because Jesus was then at his strongest. All right? Fasting is a habit. And I, there's times I've practiced it regularly, times I just do it sporadically. But the habit of fasting is uh, learning that your body is not in control of you. I always say it's, it's me telling my body, you're not the boss of me. I know you want to eat, but you're not the boss of me. Right? So Jesus was fasting in the wilderness. He was isolated. He was alone. But in that environment, he had the best connection with the Father. Right. But still, when you're hungry, when you're fasting, and when you are, when you are isolated, you are susceptible. So he's strong, but he's susceptible. That's, but that's how we get stronger, right? So we don't, again, we don't know in the passage, um, I mean, we can assume that Satan probably, this conversation that follows this happened toward the end of the 40 days because Satan doesn't jump in on day one and then Jesus keeps fasting. But Jesus had been fasting. He was fueled by the Father, still hungry in his body, but he was filled with what God would want of him. All right? Here we go, and this is the conversation. So during that time... The devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, all right, remember chapter three, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And Satan's like, yeah, if you are, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. All right, so right away, Jesus, Satan is challenging, yeah, if you're the son of God, if you are, then do this. Satan may say to me or say to you, yeah, yeah, you're a Christian, but if you're really a Christian, then do that. I mean, Satan will always challenge our identities. Yeah, you, look at your life, you've messed up. If you're a Christian, then if you're a follower of Jesus, all right? So he's challenging Jesus' identity. If you really are the Son of God, then turn these stones to bread. I mean, Jesus is hungry. It's, his body is probably screaming for food. So what's put in front of him, this test in front of him, is significant test. It's not like turning stones into bread after you've had Thanksgiving dinner. He's, they're hungry, right? But Jesus talks back. He talks back. He says, no, the scriptures say people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Now, what's important to realize here is Jesus combats a lie. So the lie of Satan is not that you can turn the stones to bread, because Jesus knew he could, but that turning the stones to bread would somehow bring him fulfillment that not eating it would not bring. In other words, the lie is not you can't do that. The lie is you need material well-being in order for you to be happy. Because what's interesting is when Jesus makes these responses, all of his responses come from the book of Deuteronomy, right as the children of Israel were getting ready to go into the wilderness, and what was one of the first tests for the children of the Israelites going to the wilderness on their way to the promised land? Hey, Moses, we got no food. We got no food. And they were complaining. God provided them quail, and he provided them manna. But sometimes hunger is a real place where God, for God to educate us and grow us. And I don't mean just physical hunger. I'm saying hunger is when there's something you want that you can't have. It's in that space that God can do a great deal of work in your life. Or you can run, back, run away from God and complain like the Israelites did in the desert. So Jesus is quoting from the children of Israel, the Israelites going through the desert, and he's reminding us, he's reminding Satan, no, I don't, I don't need food for me to have a right relationship with God. Because what I need more is a relationship with God. Every word that comes out of his mouth is more important to me than food. So he's going back. But again, in, it's in those times of hunger and ha not having what your body wants is some of the most profound learning moments in my life and probably in your life. Jesus has you in the classroom when you don't want, when you don't have what you want, when your body is asking for something that you, you're not going to get. All right? So that was his first response. People that don't live by bread alone, every mouth that comes from the word of God. Next one. Then, because there's, there's three questions, there's three times Jesus talks back to Satan. All right? And, and this, this book, this is the book I was telling you about, Evagrius of Pontus, talking back. And he, he talks about, and he uses the illustration of Jesus in the desert. And he was, this was a monk who went out in the desert in the late 4th century. And other monks were asking him, how do you deal with the lies of Satan? And this was his book. But uh, so the sense was, he kind of took this as the model. Like, okay, how, how do you respond when Satan lies to us? Because the primary weapon in Satan's arsenal in my life and in your life, and I'm pointing to my head, is lies. Right? Think about when Satan lied to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did, did God say you can't eat this fruit? Did he really mean that? I mean, he knows if you eat it, Eve, he knows if you eat it, you'll have what he has, all knowledge and wisdom. So did God really say that? I mean, right away... <laughs> The whole human history story starts with a lie from Satan that Eve believes, Adam then believes as well. It's like, well, maybe, maybe that is not true. So Satan's primary is, is in our, his weapons in our lives are lies. It's not, it's not flat tires or broken water. Oh, Satan made my water heater break. Oh, Satan made this happen. Satan, his primary weapon is lies. Your wife doesn't love you. You don't have enough money. God won't provide for you. The, the woman you're married to or the husband you're married to, that wasn't the right person. Those are lies, right? Lies. That's how Satan starts in our heads, all right? 
And he turned the holy city of Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the Son of God, again, he's asking question identity, if you are the Son of God, jump off. And here's where Satan's a little bit tricky here. He's actually quoting scripture to Jesus. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. So, I mean, Satan's using scripture. Isn't that true? I mean, God will protect us, right? But Satan, like he always does, he twists truth, maybe even just a few degrees where it's no longer true, and he's saying, yeah, why don't why don't you test God? Why don't you see if, see if you can manipulate God to doing what you want him to do because you're going to put yourself in a situation where he has to. All right, And I intentionally use the word manipulate because that's part of what's behind this lie. Why don't you see if you can get God to do what you want? All right. So God, Jesus' response is, no, the scripture also says you must not test the Lord your God. And so the sense there, Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm not going to put God to the test in a sense that's like manipulation. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to spend all this money, and I'm going to tr- assume that God's going to give me money to make, the, make my credit card payments. I mean, that's not the right way to relate with God. All right? But so that's an exaggerated form of what Satan's, t- Satan's telling Jesus. Yeah, if you jump off this, you know, God will save you, but that's us becoming God over God. So the times where you or I am saying to God, well, you've got to do this for me. I mean, we don't say it that way, but you know we think it that way. And so Jesus said, no, you don't, don't test the Lord your God. Don't, I mean, God's trustworthy. See, because what, re- what really Satan is doing is, um, do you trust God to do this for you? But again, the key is, no, but so what I'm saying is, God, I trust you if you put money in my bank account. God, I trust you if this happens well in my life. All these ifs and things like that. The key with all this is, do we really trust, and I'll repeat this later on, do we really trust that God's deep desire in my life and your life is our deep happiness? Because otherwise, obeying commandments is just obedience for the sake of being legalistic. But do we really believe that everything God says to us, everything we're called to obey, is because he is absolutely committed to my deepest happiness and your deepest happiness? His commandments aren't legalistic, burdensome things, right? So Jesus refutes that. No, the scripture also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next one, third, the third lie. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. We just sang that Jesus was king of kings, right? All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, disobeyed God, you get sense in the Old Testament that that Satan gains control. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. So it was, to some degree, there was a degree of authority that Satan had received because of the sinfulness of humanity. So Satan could give this. Right? So he wasn't just saying he was going to give something that wasn't his. I'm going to give it all to you if you just kneel down and worship me. I mean, Jesus, look at all this authority you can have. This is what you want. You want authority. You want power in the world. It's kind of like you know, the, the 
stories where you talk about somebody selling their soul to the devil. If you just sell your soul to me, I'll give you what you want. Power, ambition, authority. Well, that's kind of a shortcut. It is a shortcut, but it's, it's kind of an easy way. So, and Jesus knew that somewhere down the road was the cross. So I could, I could get power and authority if I just do this. Or if I don't do that, then down the road I have the cross. And we, we understand that kind of tension. We understand shortcuts to what we want when maybe God is telling us to go a different way to get that. Because Jesus eventually, he eventually got his authority because why? Well, Matthew 28, the end of the Gospels, after his death and resurrection, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He got it because he was obedient and he suffered. He didn't, so we can either choose to have authority and influence in our life because we sell our soul to Satan in so many ways or because we go the road that Jesus went of obedience and suffering. That's the road to authority. That's the road to influence. So Jesus is, Satan's trying to play with Jesus, lie to Jesus, but Jesus consistently kind of talks back. And actually the, the, the word, one of the words in the Greek actually has a sense of talking back. You know, and so here's, here's a couple of takeaways, and I'm going to talk, ask you to give these cards in a second here. Jesus sees your primary war against the devil as a, as a fight to believe truth over lies. Your primary battle, my primary battle spiritually, is uh, believing truth over lies. My primary battle spiritually is not um, flat tires, broken water heaters, and a cold that I might get that I think, well, Satan must be doing this to me. Now, that's not really the tools of Satan. Jesus even called Satan the father of lies. And when he speaks, he lies. So Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he's the father of lies. Whenever he speaks, everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. Now, let me back up for a second, too, because maybe, I don't think so, but maybe some of you might, yeah, so this is weird meter stuff, right? So there's Satan does that kind of stuff? I mean, it, is that like ancient kind of mythology, Satan, a real Satan? Well, Jesus seemed to believe Satan was real. I mean, the story Matthew's telling about Jesus, he would have only known that if Jesus told him this is what happened. So Jesus must believe this, the, that Satan is real, the devil is real, and the primary objective of Satan is to kill, steal, and destroy you and me, Jesus, and anybody else who would follow Jesus, all right? So if that's really, that's, so Satan's real. He's not just real in the universe. He's real in, you know, Terry Falwell's life and Kara Kalb's life. He knows how to press buttons. He knows how to lie. He's real, and his ultimate goal is your, the destruction of your soul and the ruining of human society. That's what he wants to do. So if, if, you don't, if we don't understand that and we, and we don't understand the, the warfare nature of Christianity, then the Christian life is simply just being a good person and hoping for heaven when you die. But there's, there's a battle going on. And if you want to be fully alive, awake, and free, again, I said God's deepest concern for you 
His deepest goal is your deepest happiness. If you want that, combating the lies of Satan, because Satan wants that, God wants your deepest happiness, Satan wants to destroy your soul. So even when you read like the Ten Commandments that can feel legalistic or some of the other commandments of Jesus, it's like, no, his commands, the Bible says, are not burdensome. And they always lead us to that, our deepest happiness. And we have to be convinced of that. So he, Jesus sees our primary war against the devil is to fight believe truth over lies. Now, uh, grab one of these cards for a second because I'm going to give you some examples. Now, I gave these to you because maybe some of you can relate to this. I'm hoping all of you can, all right? So uh, there's another book I read recently, and I was reading these books even before I got to Matthew 4. This is, this is more of a modern uh, book called Live No Lies uh, by a guy who's a pastor. So this was written like in 2015. This was written in the 4th century. So this is easier to read, I promise you, all right? Um, but he talked, about, uh, he, he talked about what he uses, and I thought this exactly it's a biblical model. Um, and we'll just give some examples of this, all right? So you identify, so think about how Satan lied, and then Jesus understood the lie, and then he, under, he spoke the truth. So three things to think about with any issue, and I'll, I'll give you some examples, all right? So what's the thought, feeling, or urge? What's the lie, and what's the truth, all right? So this is kind of a, a, a small handbook about how to talk, talk back to the devil, all right? So thought, feeling, or urge. There's been many times in my life where I thought, I felt financial pressure. I felt stressed, like, ah, we don't have enough. I'm... And even though decisions Kathy and I had made, we really felt like was God was behind our decisions. And I can wake up in the middle of the night feeling anxious about college tuition or car payment or all kinds of other things. So the thought and the feeling in that case would be, I'm anxious. I'm really anxious. I'm physically feeling anxious. doesn't happen as much now, but I think in my earlier years, I think, but there's still times where I feel anxious about, well, what's the lie? The lie, if I go to the next one down, so I would write in this, the thought, feeling, or urges, anxiety about financial security. Well, what's the lie? The lie is God's not going to take care of you. God won't supply your need. You usually find scripture. My God will supply all, all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians where, where Paul even talks about God will supply all you have and enough so you can be generous. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. That's the truth. So the lie is God doesn't, God's not going to take care of you. God doesn't even know you have these anxieties. So part of the lie is also you're on your own. You're on your own to figure it out. Good luck with your savings account. So what's the thought, feeling, or urge? My anxiety, your anxiety about financial things. What's the lie? You're on your own. God won't take care of you. What's the truth? My God shall supply all my need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. All right? Um, I'll get even more practical. What's the thought, feeling, or urge? Sometimes maybe it's a sexual temptation. Your body, your body wants something, Right? that's not your spouse or whatever, or not the right time with your spouse, whatever, however I want to say it, all right? What's the lie? The lie is, well, if you really want to be happy, do what feels good. That's the whole culture right now. 
if it feels good to you, you should do it. That's the lie. All right? What's the truth? Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is also fornication, any sexual activity outside of male-female marriage. And again, you might say, well, that's a command. No, it's a commandment because God is committed to your deepest happiness. Another statement of the commandments is don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet somebody else who's not your spouse. All right? So sometimes just knowing those scriptures, so when the, sometimes we can't control the thoughts, feelings, or urges, whether it's a sexual urge, an anxious urge, or, you know, times you might think, or I might think, and I've had these, you know, my wife and I will be in a conflict, and she's downstairs helping the kids. I would say this if she was here, because we've talked about this, where all of a sudden we're in a conflict, and I think, she, and what comes to my mind is, she doesn't like me. She always does this. Well, I know that's not true. I know that's not true. So identify the, I mean, too often in the heat of an argument, the lie kind of gets lodged pretty quickly, and then anger can start coming up, but being able to recognize the lie. One of the things Evagrius talks about is learning how to recognize the first movement of the lie. So in other words, if I'm having a fight with my wife and I think, oh, she always says that. Well, the first movement of the lie is that's not true. And am I able to stop there and say, um, figure out, you know, think about the, the, that my wife is truthful. She speaks, you know, I, I know what she, I know that's a lie. Or if I'm, and I, I did this in my younger days, and I sometimes even now, I'll, uh, I remember one time specifically, a couple times specifically, this is like 20 years ago, I was walking across campus, see a good-looking woman walk the other way, and if it's May on campus, they don't have many, much clothes on, right? And I remember actually saying to myself, to God, out loud, that's a lie. Because the lie that was coming to me right away was, if you were a real man, that's the kind of woman you'd have. If you were a real man, that's the kind of woman you had. That's a lie. If whatever God has joined together, let no man pull asunder. So God was always giving me what I need. Always, I, I'm Kathy, and even if you're not married, God's given you what you need. But... If, if you let the first movement of the lie linger a little bit, God's not going to take care of me. Another spouse would be better for me. Whatever. If you let that linger, and then that first movement becomes a second movement, becomes a third movement, and all of a sudden the lie starts drilling down into your soul, and it's way harder to shake at that point. Because, so the importance of, like, Jesus' responses were like ASAP. And part of, part of how I pray for myself and pray for others is the recognition of, of when the lie first hits. Because sometimes we don't see that. And maybe your issue is anger. So the urge with anger is, if I go to the first category, the, thought, the urge with anger is, I'm going to explode back. And what's the lie there? Well, the lie is, the lie is, again, if it feels good, I should do it. And if I'm angry, I can express it. Well, the truth is, and all throughout the Proverbs and other places of Scripture, you know, in your anger, do not sin. Um, anger doesn't bring about the results you want. That's a paraphrase of a passage in Proverbs. Sometimes just reminding yourself of that. And you might say, well, I know that's true. And I'm not just saying 
let's throw a truth against a lie, and then it becomes like this cognitive behaviorism where we're like, no, it's you're saying it back to a being that's trying to lie to you, and you're affirming before God, I know you're committed to my deep happiness. And so for me to let this first movement of anger stir in me to be retaliatory, I know that's not going to lead to that. I know that's going to lead to the destruction of my soul. So, uh, and in the book, I'll just say real quick, in, in uh, Evagrius's book, this actually was considered the beginning stages of the uh, seven deadly sins. Have you heard that phrase before? But he, has, he talks about eight of them. He talks about um, the temptations toward gluttony, fornication, love of money, now, that's three of them. He talks about the demon of sadness, and he's not saying you shouldn't be sad, but he's saying the times when we're sad, when our next thought is, ah, God doesn't care. God doesn't see me. I'm sad about this. You know, Judy's sad about her cancer. Aaron and Sadie are sad about Knox, or you're sad about something going on in your life. Sometimes the lie that Satan comes in with, not, the lie is not don't be sad. The lie is, God doesn't see you. You're on your own with your sadness. Deal with it. Hope you have a good job with that. All right? Um, God doesn't see my pain. That's the lie. So that's the demon of sadness. He talks about the demon of anger, the demon of listless, listlessness, which is just the, uh, yeah, I don't know why, why bother with this. Why bother with spiritual things? It's not going to make a difference. It's almost kind of a depression. But these are all, he, he backs, it's all biblical term, phrases behind all this. Uh, the demon of vainglory, which is ambition. You know, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Well, it must be because we're tempted to do that. We like, we like to kind of promote ourselves. Pride, but all these other issues. I don't know what your issue is. I don't know what, I don't know what you would, when you think of the issues that you feel like you're battling with lies about, I don't know what you would... I don't know, I probably, have, I probably have at least two or three cards worth for me that would be part of my regular talking back exercises with Satan. And I don't know about you, but mine often happen in the middle of the night when I wake up. It's quiet, and all of a sudden, I think we're vulnerable in those times. There might be other times when you're vulnerable. We're vulnerable when things are stressful, so your relationship's stressed, your money's stressed, your job's stressed. Satan knows that's when he can come in and lie. So, uh, last slide here. Uh, and this is just a challenge. I've already said this statement, but will you trust that what God wants for you is only your deepest happiness? Because if you don't start with that, combating the lives of Satan is simply this back-and-forth boxing match that you may or may not win because you're not convinced why you're talking back. But if you're talking back because you say, no, I know that God's deepest desire for me is my deep happiness, and I won't entertain that lie. I won't entertain that thought. I won't, I, I'm feeling this physical urge, whether it's anxiety or sexual temptation. I'm feeling that, but I will not let that go to the next stage because I, I trust God. Because, again, what Satan was, anytime Satan tempts, and when he was, when he was tempting Jesus, he was trying to Put a wedge between him, he and his relationship with God. Every lie is an attempt to put a wedge between you and whether you trust this is true about God. So, uh, 
So back to the start of the whole sermon, the whole passage of Matthew is follow Jesus. If this is, what Je- this is how Jesus dealt with Satan, and if he among all people had to deal with Satan in those ways, then maybe it's a good model to respond back to Satan in certain ways. Follow Jesus. This is how he did spiritual battle. So we, we read here in Matthew 4, he defeated Satan because he talked back. Boom, the next few passages in the next chapter's whole book of Matthew is how Satan continues to, Jesus continues to defeat Satan now by casting out demons out of people. And then we know from Scripture he ultimately defeated Satan when he rose from the dead on the cross. So the Bible tells us that uh, he made a spectacle. Jesus said, the Bible says, Jesus made a spectacle of the demonic world when he rose from the dead. But it started way back here in the desert where he learned how to talk back and to acknowledge that there are things that are said in my head that are lies that need to be confronted with the truth. And because the truth will always lead me to my deepest happiness, which is what God wants for me. Anything short of that is uh, a lie. So the, the challenge more is just trusting that God wants that for you. The challenge here is not figure out how to cognitively battle Satan. Yeah, but underneath all that, if you don't believe God wants your happiness, then it's just going to be a game you play and you'll lose. If you believe that, then this becomes an avenue to your deepest happiness and satisfaction and joy, because that's what God wants for you. So Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, and uh, what we do at Exodus, the night he was betrayed, he had the bread and the cup, this is my body, this is my blood, shed for you, and we're proclaiming forgiveness of sins, and in a sense we're proclaiming the defeat of Satan in our lives, and we're inviting the Spirit of Jesus into our lives. So let me pray, and then we'll take here. So Jesus... The Bible tells us that you, uh, you made a spectacle of the demonic realm when you willingly walked into death and then your resurrection and that Satan is defeated. And we know then, Jesus, because of that, because we are your daughters and your sons, we have your spirit in us, we can only defeat Satan by that same spirit you've placed inside of us. We can't do it with our own willpower. We don't have enough of that. We're just human beings. So we're grateful, Jesus, and as we take this bread and this juice into our bodies, let it be a reminder to us of our gratitude for you for putting your spirit into us so we then have the power to refute the lives of Satan so then that we then have a future that's destined to be full of our deepest happiness and joy because that's how you designed us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.